Well, hello again, Memphis, and welcome to Storyboard 30. This is the show taken right out of the pages of Storyboard Memphis, the nonprofit publication that brings you the arts, community, and culture in one place. And I'm Mark Fleischer, publisher of Storyboard Memphis and your host for Storyboard 30. My guest for this episode is Memphis writer Angie Howard. Ms. Howard is the author of her memoir, Sin Child, an autobiography of a rather traumatic life growing up in rural North Mississippi. And to be blunt, these aren't some of your average childhood traumas. In her book, Angie gives readers a harrowing narrative of her early life dealing with loss and abuse, with 11 stepfathers, organized crime, a personal loss due to AIDS, constant abandonment, and homelessness by the age of 16. Now, for storyboard readers, you ought to recognize the name Angie Howard, as well as her book Sin Child. A storyboard was honored to publish two excerpts of her book for the first two issues of our monthly print publication back in the fall of 2018. We caught up with Angie the week of March 22nd, a few weeks before her book Sin Child has given a wider national release, and for what is her very first podcast interview. We talked about her book, her new nonprofit dedicated to helping those suffering from PTSD, about her younger self growing up in Mississippi, and about the physical tolls of a life rooted in traumas. So why don't we just, you know, start by asking you, like, like we said, how, how are you feeling? I'm feeling okay. I have definitely had uh, my bouts with uh, health problems over the last two years. And it is believed that the health problems I have, which are multiple autoimmune disorders, including a neurological disorder are stemmed from my childhood, from the experiences I endured during my childhood and adolescent years. So, you know, I was, of course, reviewing and going back and looking at your, your biographical information. And yeah, somewhere in there, you, you know, as mentioned the fact that um, PTSD can take as many as 20 years off of your lifespan. It definitely right. can. Uh, any The ACE score, I don't know if you're familiar with ACEs, but Adverse Childhood Experiences, there's a test that was uh, administered in 1997 by two prominent physicians from Kaiser Permanente. And that test asked questions such as, did you live with, with someone who had mental illness? Were you sexually abused? Were you physically abused? Were you verbally abused? Um, 10 questions. So 10 is the highest ACE score you can have. Individuals with four or more ACE scores are likely to have a 20 year shorter life expectancy mm-hmm. than those with none. Yeah. ACE scores also, um, four more ACE scores increase, increases your level. Uh, your ch- four more ACE scores increase your chance of lung disease by 3%. They increase number of suicide attempts by 14 Mm-hmm. Percent, uh, the level of intravenous drug use, uh, twice the level of liver disease, cancer, uh, many things that people would never think about PTSD or adverse childhood experiences doing to your body years later when you're over it. So l- let, let's talk about your experiences because your experiences, you part of your own dealing with your experiences turned into a memoir. And 
the memoir we can, you know, thankfully say now is on its way to a national publisher. The book is called uh, Sin Child. And in looking over your biographical information, it, it seems like the catalyst for writing the book was the death of your mother. Is that right? It actually uh, started before then. When I was 34 years old, first of all, I'll say that I spent my entire childhood and most of my adult life living under a veil of secrecy. I felt like my childhood experiences were a reflection of me or that people would see them as a reflection of me. So I was, you know, on the PTA committee. I was the Girl Scout leader. I coached my children's basketball team. I was very active in their lives in raising them and never wanted anyone to know the truth about my life because I had been judged so harshly as a child by who my family was or the circumstances I was living under. I didn't want that to happen. Um, and when I was um, in my early 30s, I started revealing a little more about my, some of my childhood experiences. And the way I began to reveal them were through a sense of some sort of twisted humor, I would say. I would say things and I would make a joke about it. And my friends would look at me. I had a couple of friends and they would look at me and say, that didn't really happen, did it? And I would say, oh yes, it, it did. And the more they learned, the more they started saying, Angie, this is a book. You should write a book. And then I would tell a few more people some things. I started just slowly lifting that heavy veil off me and, and um, telling some of my story or stories. And um, I got the same thing from everyone. You should be a book. This is a book. Oh, my goodness. So I looked into, I was like, I, I'm not a writer, guys. At, trust me, ask any English teacher I ever had, and they will tell you that that's the last thing I would be as a writer. Mm -hmm. And I started actually working. Oh, at the, at 34, my tipping point was at 34 years old. I, I really had this sense of what, you know, as I aged, I would stop having nightmares. I would stop having triggers. I would stop having flashbacks and that, that did not happen. It had never happened. And I sought out a therapist and after one session of this therapist, and I really did sit there the whole time thinking, is she even listening to me? Mm -hmm. And she started at the end of the session, pulling out brochures on post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. And I said, I don't have that. I, um, you know, I have anxiety. I have a little depression. I definitely don't have PTSD. I haven't been to war. Uh, as you can see, I haven't lost a limb. And she really explained that to me and gave me the tools to work with once I accepted what she was saying, gave me the tools to work with to be able to turn my life around. In that time, in the year that I spent with her and work, working on myself, you know, I became such a better person, such a better person. I understood more about it and I definitely saw a need for others to start to be able to understand this. And that sparked me to write, write the book. You know, it's interesting you say that about, uh, you know, commenting to your therapist, I, I didn't go to war, you know, I, I, 
I, I'm, this is not PTSD. Um, because as you, you know, as you mentioned there, as you allude to, the PTSD has long been associated with men and women coming back from, you know, war and conflicts. And yet more recently, you know, we have all learned that there are, I've heard the term big T, big T traumas and little T traumas. You know, big T traumas being, you know, seeing someone murdered or, you know, and then little T traumas being all those little things that are fairly traumatic in your childhood that add up to something. Yeah. They're tolerable stress, stressors and toxic stressors. And the toxic stressors are the ones that really lead to long-term involves. Mm -hmm. Reading your biography and reading parts of your memoir. And I don't want to give away too much because we want readers to read the book. Right. Um, <laughs> but, you know, looking at that, it is a wonder. I, I am struck by the comment your high school teacher made, as you said, that uh, in, in meeting up with her, her tearing up and saying that I thought you might be dead by now. Yes. It is a wonder when you look at what you went through that you did even make it past your 20s. Do you want to talk about any of the details of your childhood without giving too much away from what's in your book? Absolutely. Statistically, when you dive into the world of ACEs, I should be either incarcerated or not alive at this point, given uh what all I did go through. Um, and my counselor that I had run into at the grocery store one day, who the Miss Caples, who did tear up and had made the comment to me that she was most positive I, I was no longer alive and she had no idea how I had come through it. Um, there were nights, there were days that I spent, I stayed in school for one. I, I, I was supposed to be the first person who graduated from high school in my family. That meant a lot to me. Mm -hmm. I also had to work to support myself. And at the same time, many nights find places to stay. There were days that I would get up and not know what that night was going to bring, but I had to stay focused on school. I had to stay focused on my job after school and then see where I landed for night. Uh, fortunately, I had several good friends and I very seldom didn't have a place to stay at night. Um, I also, before I was able to control my situation when I was younger, I stayed in not so desirable places. Uh, my mother had a history of dropping me off and not just not coming back. Mm -hmm. um, of course, that left burdens for the individuals where she would drop me off or for those home environments. Um, she left me at my great grandmother's uh, one day and anyone who knows the South know, knows that we have some pretty grueling Julys heat wise. And um, she told me to stay there under the carport that she would be back to get me and had told me that there was just not enough room in the car for my brother, sister, and the two of us and the groceries. So I thought they were going to the grocery store and she didn't come back for three months. She actually left and moved to Florida oh. and I would spend my nights. I was around seven or eight years old at that time. 
And I would spend every night looking out the window for her to come back. That is very difficult to process, um, listening to it. Um, I can't even imagine having to live through that. You're yeah. able to, you're able to talk about these things now. Yes. How, how long would you say it took you to be able to talk about these things? To, my understanding of trauma and even my own is you're never really done processing it. No, I agree. Yeah. And I don't um, know that, that the processing will ever end. Right, right. But how long did it take you to be able to talk about this and to wrap would, your head around it? I would say it took me 34 years. Um, you know, like I said, when I went to the therapist, I, I, st I was feeling like I was crazy. I felt like in the whole grand scheme of things that something was happening to me mentally. And... Um, realizing that I had a disorder and it was treatable, not curable necessary, necessarily, but treatable, knowing that I could help myself and starting to wrap my head around that this, what the things that happened to me were not my fault. I think that was one of the biggest issues I had that I felt I carried a guilt that all of these things were my fault. My mother often would say, look what you've done, you know, this is all your fault. You've ruined my life. Um, so I grew up hearing everything was my own fault and I did not want other people to see me that way. So therefore I didn't wanna share my story. I didn't wanna think about my story. I really compressed my feelings. I, uh, I tried to focus on a lot of different things. I typically had two to three jobs at one time plus doing all the extracurricular activities with my, my twin daughters. Mm -hmm. And um, my therapist explained it to me once as stacking pancakes. She said, oh, okay, Angie, you're stacking pancakes. She said, you know, you can, you can stack pancakes up so high, right? But right. you get to five pancakes and six pancakes and the, the pancake tower starts leaning. Mm -hmm. And you, you put 10 pancakes up there and it's, it's very likely to fall over. And she said, that's what you're doing. You're stacking your pancakes and then you, you hit bottom and you crash. So I really had to learn how to adjust the way I coped with things. And I learned that talking about it was one of the best ways or actually writing about it. Yeah. You know, as you describe this, you know, I can't help but think of, again, my, my, some of my own and, and it, it, it feels it feels like chasing normalcy that very good way to put that. Yeah. That you're running and doing things in, in hopes that you're going to find this normalcy, but it, it's like someone running after a truck that's speeding up. You're not going to catch it, you know, until you, until you deal with, you know, these traumas. That's right. As you're writing the book, do you feel, you feel like you were at a place in, to where you finally could talk about this? Was there, did you feel a sense of the trauma, like reliving some of the traumas as you were writing? 
I don't know if I felt quite comfortable speaking about it. Um, during the initial stages of the book, uh, there was a publisher out of Oxford, Mississippi, Neil White, who um, got the synopsis, had a meeting with me, and we, we discussed the, the book, and he was very interested in it. And I told him right away that I did not want my name on the book, that we could just do it under someone else's name, a fictitious name. And mm -hmm. he said, no, 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 your name has to be on the book. These are your experiences. And you, you are the only one who knows this story. And you are the one who, you are why people are going to buy this book. Yeah. So I, you know, I, I think that's, that was part of my, not, still kind of wanting to hide things, still not, not quite ready to let go and let people know the real truth. Um, it was only until I had been writing the book uh, a couple years, which is probably much longer than most authors take. <laughs> like I said, this was my, my first attempt at writing and I had a lot to learn. Mm -hmm. And then I worked, uh, once I got everything written that I felt like I could write, I worked alongside a wonderful story editor, um, Kate Leckler. And Kate really made me dig into feelings. Like how, how were you feeling when this happened? How were you feeling when you were sitting at a table watching your brothers and sisters eat and, and your mother and her husband and you, you were unable to eat? You were being told you couldn't eat. How did that make you feel? How did you feel when you went to sleep that night? Um, she really made me bring out deep interceded feelings. And I believe it wasn't until then that I was truly ready to speak about those feelings and be really open with who I was and where I came from. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Beyond your, you know, you, beyond a therapist, um, had you spoken about some of these things before you sat down and started writing? I had spoken briefly to, uh, especially one of my high school teachers, uh, Miss Ellis, who is in the book. I had spoken briefly with her and uh, even lived with her for a short stint. Um, but outside of that, not really. Uh, uh, when I, I moved to Tupelo, Mississippi from a small town, Oklahoma, and we had to basically lie to the school about where my family was. Um, then registering for school, lucky for me, was a lot easier than it is now. They didn't need the proof that they have to have now. And I was asked, you know, where's your mother? I said, she's out of town. She, she really was out of town. And, you know, where's your father? He's deceased. And he really was deceased. So while that was true, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, you know, we weren't, we weren't telling the whole story. So I was able to enroll at that school and live with this family um, that I had met through teaching some modeling and designing pageant clothes for mm -hmm. one of their family members. Mm -hmm. You know, you're writing because, you know, you mentioning the fact that this was your first, you know, first dive into writing. Yes. And yet I find it to be just the first two pages alone. Um, and, I, you know, not giving anything away with the first couple of pages. Um, it is raw to me. It is heartbreaking. Um, and it does, it's also heartbreakingly cold 
as I was writing my, my notes about this, um, that's one of the things I noted is it's heartbreakingly cold. And I'm talking about um, your, um, in, the, in the book, your, your grandmother, your granny. Yes. Um, and uh, the way she reveals this news to you. Um, so my question is, is about the writing, I, I guess, because it, it is so um, raw and immediate. Um, it, it does draw you in right away. Talking about the writing craft itself for just a second, is this something that you like a, like a sculptor, you know, chiseling and figuring out how it looks numerous times, or did you find that this came out of you pretty quickly? I know you said it took a couple of years, but. It did, but I did find that it came out of me pretty quickly. Um, and like, I'll, I will mention Neil White again, who is the author of Sanctuary of Outcast. Um, he was an amazing mentor. I would, I did not write the book in chronological order. Uh, and then after I had nearly finished the book, my mother passed away in an unfortunate way. So then I had to go back and rewrite or re recalculate how some of the book was written, but I would get stuck and I would go in to Neil's office. He would say, come by the office, let's chat. And I would tell him, I can't, I can't write anymore. I'm at a brick wall and this is it. I'm done. And he would start asking me questions about my childhood or about, he'd say, oh, tell me about this story. You mentioned this before, tell me this story. And I would start telling him the story. And at the end, he would, he said, he would always sit quietly. And at the end would say, now go home and write that. Mm -hmm. And that's what I did. And I did mean, I didn't really know how the book would turn out. I didn't have a, a preset um, of anything for that, but as I wrote it, I wanted it to be raw. The rawness of the story, I did not want things sugar-coated mm -hmm. because I think a lot of things do get sugar-coated. Um, there were times when I'm like, oh, is that too raw? Is that going to be too raw for the reader? But at the same time, that would take away from the story mm -hmm. because it was not a sugar-coated childhood by any means. Yeah, and I, I would also think that, you know, keeping, being brave enough to to keep it um, raw and honest is also out of respect for the your readers i think because you know i you know i have to say those those who are the, the readers who are going to be interested in this chances are they've had their own experiences um and you know i feel like the way you've written it um you are paying the utmost respect to those readers who may have experienced anything close to similar, you know, Thank to you. these circumstances. Yeah. No compliment. Well, and I, but I think it's, it's, it also speaks to who you are. Um, you know, you started a foundation um, based on, I would have to say your bravery you know, in, in speaking out and talking about your traumas. Um, but the foundation is geared toward helping others. Yes. Um, yeah. So whether the foundation is, is an extension of the book or vice versa, <laughs> it's still coming out of your desire to say something in order to help someone else. 
Absolutely um, it is. Um, the, the foundation is something I had not thought of doing until I got into the story editing process and I was being asked, like I said, those questions um, making me dive deep. And I had worked previously as an RN supervisor at an inpatient psychiatric facility for children. For five years, I was a supervisor there. And I started thinking about all of those children and I calculated that I cared for around 1500 children during my time there, ages six to 18. Not one of those children were ever diagnosed with PTSD. They were diagnosed with intermittent explosive disorder, borderline personality disorder, you know, mood disorders. Not one was diagnosed with PTSD. And me knowing their entire story as their caregiver in this facility, about 90% of those 1500 children should have been diagnosed with PTSD. Oh my. So that made me so aware. That's the first time that I was aware because when I was a nurse there for 15 years, I knew nothing about ACEs or the adverse childhood experience score. Um, I knew nothing about PTSD, except that's something you get at war or when you, you lose a limb. Um, it, it, it just, it haunted me. Mm-hmm. And I knew I had to do something about it to increase awareness because if you don't know, you can't do anything. And what we were doing for these children, because they were diagnosed wrong, we were doing all the wrong things for them. We were giving them pharmacological restraints. We were putting them in personal restraints on a hard, cold floor. We were putting them in seclusion rooms surrounded by concrete walls. And that's the last thing any of those kids needed. Yeah. Your, your book has an element of, again, this speaks to your courage in talking about this, but what you talk about in the book and your experiences definitely has an, an aura of disbelief. And I'm not saying, and I'm not suggesting not believing that's not what I mean. I mean, it's one of, more, one of those, this is unbelievable. And back to what your high school teacher said, I'm, I'm, I'm shocked that you're still alive, you know. Is there any specific thing that I think that, like for me, there's there's any number of things I can talk about that are just completely unbelievable in terms of having to to survive this. 11 stepfathers. Um, yes, and though that did not count the live-ins. <laughs> I had 11 actual stepfathers, and the funny story, is in the state of Mississippi, five is the limit. (laughs) So once you've been married and divorced in Mississippi five times, you have to go to another state to get married. So fun fact for the day. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. Oh my goodness. The um, organized crime uh, is part of the story. Yes. What is it about the AIDS epidemic that relates to your, your story? When I was very young, um, I was elected a homecoming court maid, whatever the, the young children do, whatever that was called. And mm-hmm. so we, we had rented a, an, a, an evening gown type for, for the homecoming court. And while we had it, it just so happened that my school beauty review was the same week. So my grandmother entered me into the competition and I won. Uh, it was my first competition. 
Well, that kind of led to other pageants. And uh, I've, I continued to do well. And then I made it to a pageant on the state level that had talent as a competition. Well, I really wasn't all that talented, but um, I sang uh, a Dolly Parton song actually. And I, I was seven or, no, I was probably about eight then. And I caught the attention of a voice teacher that was in the audience. Um, he coached a lot of pageant girls. He lived in the Tupelo, Mississippi area, but he also actually had a house in Memphis. Memphis was his, his hometown but he would come to Tupelo to teach voice. And um, he talked to my grandmother and said, I think we could, could work with her and maybe she could, you know, there could be something there. So uh, she bought me a voice lesson with him and it went very well. And um, I just, he was a wonderful man. The second time she took me and dropped me off for my voice lesson, she didn't come back. <laughs> and he and his wife, Rosa, uh, Rosa spoke very little English, but was such a kind, loving soul. Um, they, they were kind of stuck with me. And um, they kept me. Uh, she cleaned me up. They fed me. And my grandmother called late that night and said, you know, hey, I'm sorry. I just, just didn't get back to her. And, you know, I can't find anyone to come and get her. So now it'll be tomorrow. Mm -hmm. So they kept me for the night. And that led to many more nights of me staying at in their home. Mm -hmm. uh, it also led to me uh, getting to sit through voice lessons because this was Pete's job. So I would sit at the back of the room and listen to all of the voice lessons he would give to, to girls and guys. Mm -hmm. And um, I wanted to make Pete happy. So I would learn the words to all of these songs. And then I would try to sing every song at the end of the day. But Pete started becoming fragile. He, he was a rather large man and he had a, a, what I call a gruff whiskey voice, which was one of the most wonderful voices I've ever heard in my life, by the way. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, he, he began losing weight. Um, I had, I had sensed that his marriage to Rosa was a marriage of convenience. They were both very good to each other, but Rosa was from another country and she was able to gain citizenship here. And um, in the South, um, there was, you know, real stigma, not only on black individuals, but also uh, the LGBT community. So yeah. Pete was known as a married man and could still teach voice. And I watched him basically fade away, not knowing what was wrong or not knowing about AIDS. And one weekend he didn't show up for a pageant. And there was, there were no phone calls. There was no way I was still very young. I was about 10 by this time and had spent a couple of years with Pete and Rosa. And I, um, I never knew, I, I, I thought he left. I thought like everyone else, he left. And it was uh, about a year later, I was between 11 and 12. And I, I finally, I just, I had missed them so much and I never could understand why they left so abruptly. And I asked, where's Pete? And again, my grandmother broke the news. She said, he's dead. He died. And that was, I was like, how did he die? You know what? I, I had no clue. And they told me that he had pneumonia. And so I believed that for a very long time until later in life, I met what would be some of his friends. And it had been rumored that he was HIV positive. Wow. 
Wow. And so I feel like um, that, that was before the, the wonderful medications that we have now and the wonderful treatments that can help with HIV. I feel like I was really robbed of um, his uh, love and affection, his, his caring spirit. Yeah. Also, without giving away too much uh, in terms of what's in the book, talk a little bit about the organized crime element that you experienced in North Mississippi. I learned a lot. Let me tell you. Um, I, um, I live when I was living with a family in Tupelo. Uh, one of the agreements for me living there was that I would work at a convenience store. Um, this convenience store was located in Shannon, Mississippi. And the, the family I was living with, the grandmother of the household had previously been married to the owner of this convenience store. And I would work there after school and on weekends in part for my rent to stay with them. I was able to eat food from the convenience store. Of course, it, it had no cooked food. It was just whatever was on the shelves. But it, it, it was a beer store. It was a gas store. It was the only convenience store right around there. We sold beer to miners. Uh, I was a miner selling beer, which I had no clue at the time how much trouble I could have gotten in. Uh, doing that. Um, they trained me. We sold beer on Sundays, which was a big no-no in Mississippi during that, that era. Um, they trained me on how to look for agents coming in to, you know, make sure you weren't selling to minors or, or whatever. And we bought food stamps for 50 cents on the dollar. We also the, uh, sold stolen cigarettes. There was a big stolen cigarette ring that most people who live in that area do remember to this day, but the cigarettes, we would order cigarettes to stock the shelves with because we had to offset that stolen balance. The stolen goods would come in, the, in through the back. And on cigarette cartons, there are serial numbers stamped on the end of every single carton. So we would have to be sure to peel the, the end off and burn the ends of the cigarette cartons before stocking the shelves. Oh well, then the cash register too, you had to make up for okay, how many food stamps have I sold for 50 cents on the dollar? And how many packs of stolen cigarettes have I sold? It was always a balancing act, always watching your back and crunching a lot of numbers. And I was 15. I was 15 years old during that time. Mm -hmm. And I lived with them for about six months. And during that time, the owner of the store was arrested. And he did, he did serve time but soon became a trustee. So he would get out on the weekends and come to the store and do his backroom business dealings, whatever they were. Um, I had no part of that, but he, he liked to hit the bottle a lot and he would get in fights with customers and they would pull guns and he would knock shelves over and always, there was always things to clean up on those weekends. Oh my. As I said, um, and this doesn't even get into the uh, the abuse uh, that you went through. Uh, it, 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 as I said before, it does have the aura of being just completely unbelievable that someone could go through this. As we talked about, trauma is never really fully processed, perhaps. How long did it take you to really separate yourself? If you, you, Do you know what I mean by separating yourself from it? I do. Separating yourself from you, your, your person, your person, your soul, you know, from the life that you 
had to endure and that you survived. How long did that take you? And then what was that like? You know, I, I would have told you three years ago, it probably took me about 40 years. But when I was 41 years old, I was diagnosed with multiple autoimmune disorders. And I also had a stroke. Um, I had a left pontine infarct. And then I started learning, diving more and more into ACEs. I started learning the physical impacts that this has for long term. The mm -hmm. conditions that I have, they are chronic and they are progressive. So now I almost feel like I'm still not separated. I had finally come to a point in my life where I felt that separation. Mm -hmm. And now I have all the medical conditions to deal with and mm -hmm. they'll be lifelong. So that, that creates another um, binder, so to speak. Um, so yeah, you know, I, I'm not sure once, once the long-term effects or once the damage has been done, so to speak, you can always help them out. ACEs are not destiny. They are, they're not going to 100%, you know, ruin your life, but I do not think they will ever go away. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I do not think there will ever be a total separation if that makes sense. Oh, it totally, totally makes sense. Yeah. How, how much are you able to look back and say that was just, you know, bleeping crazy. Oh, a lot, a lot. I really, um, to me, it was, it was normal. It was a normal life. It's the only life I knew. Mm -hmm. So after my kids got older and I was able to branch out on my own and start developing my own group of friends, uh, I realized that, wow, none of these people live like this. <laughs> or live like I lived. I, I realized even when my children were growing up that I, I wanted them to grow up and have a much different life than I did. So their life was much different than mine. But knowing that all of my friends have such a different life and it's a life that, that I love. When I was a child, I, I always joke and say, when I was a child, what I really wanted to do was just grow up and sit at a bar and drink a martini. And I just had this picture in my head of sitting there fancy in a fancy dress and or fancy outfit and drinking a martini and um I get to do that now <laughs> mm -hmm. uh but um I have such a wonderful group of friends my friends are my family um they are my support my backbone um I love them and they they really I have amazing friends they've been good at listening uh, they've been a little shocked at times and, you know, the, the shock factor wears off. And I think some of them love me even more because of what had happened. And that's, that's something I never thought yeah. I would experience. Yeah. When did you start um, your um, PTSD ACE program foundation? When did you start that? The PTSD ACE Foundation was formed as a nonprofit, a 501c3 organization in, um, let's see, around summer of 2019. And my plan, the, the original book, Sentile, uh, was originally scheduled to launch on March 31st of 2020. And I had planned to launch the foundation, have everything set up, web, web design and everything. So when I launched the book, I would launch the foundation. And they would go hand in hand. And obviously, when March 31st of 2020 came, 
we went into quarantine. Right. Yeah. So um, my plans have changed. Uh, I, I, foundation is still up and going. Uh, plans did change a little bit of how we're going to structure things for the next year and a half to two years, mm-hmm. but in a, in a good way, they changed in a good way. It's just not how we originally intended. Yeah. Um, and, and we're going to, we're going to continue and then we'll get back to that point when life settles down. Our long-term goals are simply increasing awareness. The CDC released, released a statement last week that said, Raising awareness is the number one prevention right now mm-hmm. of, of ACEs because without awareness, uh, Memphis has already some wonderful organizations. Um, one being the ACE Awareness Foundation that is now dissolving, mm-hmm. but they a lot of places focus on having facilities or having a place for people to go. The problem is without recognition and without awareness, you do not know to go to those places. So it's wonderful if you can have four facilities, but if there's no one utilizing them, if they don't know to utilize them, they, they serve no purpose. Yeah. And um, so our goal is to increase awareness, number one. And then we hope to reach a point where we can be some type of support staff to, to have the funds, I should say. We hope to one day have the funds to place tutors and trainers into residential treatment facilities, mental health facilities for children. Mm-hmm. Because some of these, a lot of these kids, not just some, that's downplaying it. A lot of these children are so talented in so many ways and they are so gifted. They have just never had an opportunity to express themselves. They've never had anyone take them serious with their art or with their poetry or with their music. And, um, we would like to be able to place support staff in facilities that are there just solely for that purpose. Mm-hmm. And then hopefully, I mean, these are big goals. These are very long-term, but hopefully eventually we will be able to provide scholarship opportunities for some of these children. Going yeah. to college was a big deal for me. And um, my life would have been made so much easier with a little help. And a lot of these kids, no one even talks to them about college. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's no wonder you have so much empathy for impoverished communities here in Memphis. It's no wonder. Yeah. You know, have you stopped to think about the levels and types of traumas that kids, families and kids are experiencing and have experienced this past year? Oh, absolutely. I can't help but think about it daily. Um, as bad as ACEs were before the pandemic, um, and it's, I believe statistically the state of Tennessee alone there, I think it's like uh, 62% of children had three or more ACEs. This was pre pandemic. Yeah. So during the pandemic, these children are stuck home and parents have lost their jobs parents who were already violent are going to be more violent because they're used to having that break, that separation from their child while they're at school. They don't have, they no longer have that. Um, People, children whose parents are substance abusers, the kids are now home all day with the substance abuse. 
Um, there are a lot of kids who depend on school for their meals. Uh, yeah. That during the times when I would live with my mother, I depended on school for my meal. And a lot of these kids, you know, they're going hungry right now. And that's something that most people here in Memphis really don't think about because most of us think, oh, there's plenty of food to go around. There are food pantries being set up. But there are parents who are not going to these food pantries. There are parents who are not going and utilizing the goods given to them and their children are not eating. I mentioned before we started talking about this, um, the, the folks I've talked to over the last few months have just commented on, we haven't even begun to uh, realize the levels of traumas being experienced right now. And also how, as a society, we're even going to deal with treating these traumas. Exactly. Almost as though it's a whole different category that's going to have to be created just to deal with this. Uh, I, I definitely believe there is. And I think schools are going to be mostly impacted because your kids who already were in schools uh, and number one, I have found out just through my own personal um, research that a lot of school teachers, a lot of our school teachers here in Memphis and in Shelby County, they've never heard of ACEs. They've never heard the word. Mm -hmm. So if you don't hear it, if you don't know about it, and if you don't understand your own, yeah. you can't deal with others or help detect others. So these kids who were already disruptive to classrooms, who were sent to juvenile detention centers or, you know, at certain ages sent, sent to jail, uh, expelled from school, those kids really didn't belong there. A lot of them, I'm not saying everybody, don't get me wrong, but I think when these kids come back to school, teachers are going to have it very, very hard. I think the disruption in classes is going to be, you know, at, at uh, a level that they've never seen. And I believe that ACEs is going to be the next pandemic, especially in school environments. They're going to have to learn how to, or a, a way, they're going to have to sort a way to figure what are, how are we going to handle this? And that's going to have to be done almost pre, I know kids are already going back to school, but we, we're only seeing the tip of the iceberg. So that's going to have to be done soon. And it, it's worrisome that there aren't a lot of people, folks, sure, we have a few different facilities, but that's small in comparison of the size of our city. How are we going to deal with that when these kids go back to school? And the, yeah. the, the new project that we've launched instead of we, like I said, we were going to start in schools and with COVID, we were unable to. So the new project we are launching um, that we are looking for funding for right now, um, we're going to take a packet. The packet will consist of the books and child. It will also sort of consist of a very informational brochure that we are our foundation designed and the actual ACE study. And we're going to distribute it to 40, that packet to 4,500 students um, around Memphis and Shelby County, college students. Um, these will be students who are in educational programs, psychological programs, medical programs. Um, and we're gonna do that among nine colleges. And in, in return, the student will write a research paper for the instructor for grade. And the student will also do a blind study ACE score. So we will be able to actually collect approximately 4,500 ACE scores from our college students 
right here in this area, which will give us a, a, a wealth of information on yeah. how illnesses are affecting this population. But this this population right now, this, these college students, they are going to be they're going to go into a workforce that's full of these kids who have just come out of a pandemic. So right. this is going to be a brand new type workforce for them. And our hopes is that the book and the materials that we're going to provide, uh, plus I will be lecturing, um, given one to two lectures, uh, whatever professors have a preference for, um, to help prepare these students for what they're about to be faced with and to help them know how to detect this. So maybe it, it stops the spread a little, little sooner. So the foundation is PTSD ACE Foundation. Yes. Um, you can find it online under ptsdaced.org, right? Yes. Um, and the book, of course, is Sin Child. Um, it hits the national bookstores. It hits national. When does it come out? April 13th. April 13th. Wow. Yes. Congratulations. Uh, I know this has been... A journey for you. I'm I'm thrilled for you that it's that it's it's gotten to this point. I'm thrilled that we have played a small part in helping helping it along and helping you along. Who is the publisher? Who picked it up again? Uh, books Books Fluent. Books, books Fluent. Fluent. Yeah. And they I also have a publicity team. Books Forward is their sister company. Yeah. So, Very good. An amazing ride. And I'm so happy I've been able to share it with you and still board. Angie Howard, thank you. Thank you so much for, for joining us. Thank you for, um, thank you for being out there to, to uh, help others through their traumas. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on. You have been listening to Storyboard 30 on 89.3 WYPL and on podcast at storyboardmemphis.org. And this has been your host, Mark Fleischer. Thanks again to my guest, Angie Howard. Her book, Sin Child, will be released nationally on April 13th. And you can find her new program, PTSD ACEs Foundation, at ptsdaced.org. Thanks, as always, to WYPL and the Memphis Public Libraries for their support, to producers Vance Durbin and Stephen Ussery, and to WYPL broadcast manager Tommy Warren, and to you listeners and supporters of the library and FM 89.3. We hope you join us next time on Storyboard 30 for more conversation with those Memphis personalities and shapers who make our lives here in the Bluff City just a little bit better. Memphis, make it a great week, and stay safe out there.